This is the word of our God. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. The word of our God. Let's pray. Our our Father, we do ask that you would speak to us through this, your word, this morning. And give us eyes to see why it matters. Give us hearts to long to be conformed to your will. And Lord, grant us many men and women in this church for whom such qualities are the norm and not the exception. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a heavy sermon last week. Hopefully a little less heavy this week, but still feels very technical, doesn't it? Here are all these requirements. This is what you have to do to be an elder. And we're, we're tempted to say, we came to church to hear about the cross. We came to church to hear about uh, a shepherd and being led to still waters. And we, we didn't come to church wanting to think about qualifications for a man to be an elder or not. That, that feels somehow a, a big letdown. We sing this song, God in the gospel of his son makes his eternal counsels known. Oh, we want those counsels. But not the part of the council as much that sounds like bureaucracy or something like that. It, it, it can be a struggle, can't it? To approach a part of a text like this. Why spend time on a text like this? Why not just say, okay, once a year we, uh, we use this list and then move on. I, I think it comes down to this. The gospel itself is at stake in how well we consider these qualifications. Why is it at stake? Well, I'll promise you, brothers in this church, sisters in this church, no matter how faithful biblically of a church we are, the world will never celebrate that. But if we're not faithful, the world will celebrate that. And if you want evidence for that, you just have to look at this this previous year. One of the most, most highly ranked and listened to podcasts in America was the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. 
Now, uh, I haven't listened to it, so I'm, I'm not going to wax eloquent about it because I can't. But, and I'm not seeing a lot of faces. Oh, yeah, I listened to that. Uh, I know a member of this church at least listened to it and found it very helpful uh, and sad. But in essence, this podcast is about a megachurch. A megachurch where the pastor even claimed to be reformed. So in the same tradition as, as us here at Christ Church. Uh, this megachurch that supposedly uh, was going to, uh, to save so many people. And in the end, what turned out to be the case was abusive leadership. Women taken advantage of. Uh, leaders who were clearly interested more in money than in the truth. And to such an extent that dozens of people were coming forward and an entire podcast that lasted many episodes were able to expose what was going on there. The church fell apart and uh, the leadership fell apart, I think. And, uh, and a lot of non-Christians thought that's why Christianity's wrong. That's everything wrong with the church. That's what you get when you're a Christian. Why does it matter that we think about who is to lead in the church of Jesus Christ? Because the world is watching. And it's not watching to applause your success. It's watching to applaud your sin. And so if we want to be a gospel light, if we want to correctly have the, the reign of King Jesus seen by people when they look at Christ Church of Franklin County, then we need to be cautious and we need to take what the king says about qualifications very seriously. Last week, we took it seriously by, by uh, expressing this. In essence, last week's sermon was, we cannot add to the requirements for leadership in the church. What God has said, we are not to add to. If God says, this is what I'm looking for in an elder, we can't say this plus these other things. If God says, derivatively, if, if this is what I'm looking for in a deacon, we can't say this plus other things. And uh, the same carries for all of the Bible, doesn't it? For all of you. If God says, this is what I'm looking for in a Christian, we can't say, well, Christian are all those things, but also these other things. We're going to reinvent the faith. But today, we're, we're looking from, from the other perspective. If we can't add to, Paul is also showing us here that we can't subtract from. And I think that's a real danger. I actually was speaking with several pastors this week, not even talking about what I was preaching on today. And uh, various ways things came up, but there, there was concern in various ways that it, whether in their own church or, or more generally in churches today, it's very easy for us to say, well, here are these qualifications Paul gives. So-and-so fulfills two out of three, and that ain't bad. So let's appoint him. 
This, this person fulfills all except for this one. But come on. If we hold such a high standard, we'll never have any leaders. I, I think some of you have, have heard me say before that when I was in, in college, my pastor went off to a, a, a pastor's and elders meeting and he came back and he was reporting to us about it, that it had come out that there was a pastor found in some pretty serious uh, sin. And one of the people in the group said, yeah, but you know, if we start not having any pastors who are addicted to pornography or, or sleep around occasionally, we won't have anyone left. As if the result is just lower the qualifications. Instead, what we need to do is we need to raise the expectations. We, we need to challenge every man and woman and child in the church to live a godly life. Because as we look at these qualifications in Titus, there is only one that God does not in other parts of the New Testament require of every man in this room. And most of them, God requires of every woman in this room. The only thing there is towards your husband instead of towards a wife or whatever. Or not towards children if you don't have them, right? But, but insofar as these things apply, they're all for all Christians. Paul isn't giving a list of things. There's what the Christian is, and then there's the unique things. That no other Christian would ever be. And that's how you spot them. The only thing that isn't required of every Christian in this list is the ability to teach. James tells us few should teach because it incurs a stricter judgment. But everything else, if you're, if you're a married man in this room, you, you can't say, well, I'm not an elder, so I don't have to be this kind of man. We need to raise the expectation rather than lower the expectation of God's word. And so that's what we're thinking about today as we look at this text. And remember that the the key word he keeps using, he uses it here in verse 6 and then uses it again in verse 7, is that the elder is one who is blameless. And I said last week, let me say it again, it does not mean sinlessly perfect. Jesus alone is sinlessly perfect. And thankfully, he is our king. But he calls sinners who have certain qualities to be under shepherds, leaders in his church. And he calls them blameless. What is it to be blameless? God said of Job in Job 1.8, one who is blameless is Uh, upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. I want you to think about that. If you are one who uh, fears God, as I hope you all are, and shun evil, as I hope we all aim to be, if you fear God and shun evil, and you realize, I've been living in this sin, what do you do? Well, the one who fears God and shuns evil starts by realizing his sin is detestable. It's wrong. It's sickening. And then that one falls on his knees before God and pleads for mercy and forgiveness. 
And then that man who shuns evil in the fear of the Lord, having received the pardon of God, turns away from that lifestyle and pursues holiness in the fear of the Lord. That, that, that's what God is getting at through uh, Paul here when he speaks of blameless. It, it's a character of one who doesn't excuse sin. He doesn't hide sin. He repents. And because he has this swift, repentant heart, he doesn't uh, have these long-term, hidden, secret sins. He may have throughout his life. But then he repents and turns. So not sinless perfection, or we'd have no pastor, let alone elders here in this church but a heart of humility before God, fearing God, shunning evil. Such a blameless one is to be appointed as elder. And what is an elder? Well, he uses two phrases here in our text to describe the elder. One is bishop or overseer. And we might be tempted to hear that and think hierarchical. We might think someone who thinks he has sovereignty over all the rest of us. We might hear such a word and think that someone who thinks he's superior. But in Acts 20, verse 28, when Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, he actually uses this word bishop or overseer in the following context. Take heed to the flock of God over whom you have been made overseers. You see, Paul sees this idea of bishop or overseer not as a superiority thing, but as a shepherding thing. And there he's drawing on Old Testament conversations between God and His people. Think of Jeremiah 23. God says of the shepherds who were over them who were acting superior who were abusing the sheep, who were taking, 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 not giving justice. They were, they were excusing sinners who paid them off and thereby hurting the people who were in need. And God says of those shepherds, I'm going to remove them and discipline them, but I'll give you shepherds after my own heart who will tenderly love. Well, what does that look like? Psalm 23. The Lord, our shepherd, guides us to green grass and pleasant waters. He restores our souls. He comforts us in affliction. He takes us right up to the face of death and gives us courage as we face it. He gives us a meal in front of our enemies, our enemies who would destroy us, and we can sit down comfortably and eat. The Lord, our shepherd. And what else does he do? We read it actually in our assurance of pardon this morning. Christ says, I go out and I find that lost sheep and I celebrate bringing it home. I bring the sheep home and not just do I celebrate, but I say to all the hosts of heaven, celebrate with me. The one that was lost is found. So when Paul says here, that the elder is an overseer. 
That's what we should expect. That's what it should be. You who serve in office, that's what we should aim at. Is to be shepherds, not dictators. Shepherds, not superiority people. And that is a hard thing. Therefore, we must often repent. Paul also uses the phrase here, steward of God, to describe the elder. Steward of God is that idea of a, a, a household manager, if, if you were really, really rich. Or uh, if you owned a business, and you owned maybe many businesses, and you would have the, the day shift manager, right? It's someone you trust, and you trust them to carry out your desires, to keep the place for you. So once again, when we elders or we who are in church office in various ways, when we hear that we are to be stewards of the house of God, we must remember it's not our property. It's not, it's not ours to do with as we desire. We're taking care of this for another. And Christ told several parables about this, where the master returns. How did you care for his property? What a, what a wonderful thing. When leadership is done right, what a gospel declaration to the church, isn't it? It's an expression of the shepherding care of Christ. And it's an expression of the provision of the owner of the house who has gone to make a room for you. What a glorious king we have. These are the types of men. They must be blameless, therefore, because they must be repentant men. Now, this blamelessness, then, is to be in several areas of life. Really, all of life. So, not sinless perfection, but a humble fear of the Lord, shunning evil, is to be visible at home, verse 6. In character, verses 7 and 8. And in doctrine, verse 9. And we're going to just leave doctrine for next week. Let's think about in the home and in character this morning. In the home, verse 6. First, in regards to one's wife, the husband of one's wife. What does that mean? What does that mean for the widow, uh, widower, the widower, who happens to be a pastor? Can he never marry again? He's got to be the husband of only one wife. Well, some churches have gone that direction. That's how they view it. If you're a widower, you can't serve as an elder or a pastor. I don't think that's what God's getting at here. In fact, it doesn't, it doesn't even fit with all of, all of the Bible to think that way. Others have said he's just talking about divorce, right? I mean, we read in Malachi, God hates divorce. So if you're divorced, if you're divorced and, and you marry again, you, you can never be an officer in the church. I, I don't think that's quite accurate either. Who we were is not who we are. And the blameless man is one that we're looking at as who he is by the grace of God in the gospel. So, 
I'm not saying we don't take into account and pray about and think about if a man has been divorced. Maybe if a man's been divorced three or four times, we should think a little harder. But because it gets to what this verse is really saying, when we read here, husband of one wife, it could be translated more stiffly, one woman man. That's a lot more broad, isn't it? A one-woman man. That, that takes it outside of the realm of only marriage. It takes it to the character of the person. Someone can be married to one wife and not be a one-woman man. Someone may not be married, and he is a one-woman man anyway. In the sense that he doesn't run around. He doesn't let his eyes wander. He's like Job, covenanting with his heart and his eyes that he will not covet after a woman. So a one-woman man is that type of character. It's a fidelity in marriage. And a purity both in and outside of marriage. Uh, just for those of you who know Bethel's father, one of the challenges that some cultures face is polygamy. Uh, what a, that doesn't have anything to do with Bethel's father, for the record. Uh, he's a one-woman man. But, uh, but some cultures have, have polygamy, and then people are converted to Christ. And then the missionaries are about ready to leave and they're saying, here's this established church. They don't need us anymore. Let's appoint some elders. They look around. And they realize all the men have multiple wives. What do you do? That sounds so foreign to us, doesn't it? Less than a decade ago, Bethel's father was a commissioner sent to the more rural parts of Ethiopia with a group of other pastors and elders to try to figure out what to do about elders. Because all the otherwise qualified men had multiple wives. Sadly, Bob and Bethel didn't know what the outcome of that commission was. So all I know is that our brother there was part of such a commission in the past decade. It's still a thing in many cultures. Uh, but I think we need to think much more hard about purity in our culture. I don't worry overly much about whether you men are going to suddenly tell me you've married another woman. Uh, I do worry about what is in our hearts. On our computer screens or phone screens. What we're taking in on television and how we're responding to that. The attitude we have as we walk down the sidewalk and people walk past us in an immodest world. And what is our response? A one-woman man. The elder needs to set that example for every man in the church. Now, I also think being told this is not simply that the rest of us look in on the marriage and say, oh yeah, he really loves his wife. I think we're also being told who one of the people is who need to testify to blamelessness. If you think about 
If you think about pastors who have been found uh, in adultery or things like that, usually, no matter who in the church they fooled, the wife wasn't typically fooled. Usually, even if she doesn't have evidence or she's too ashamed to bring it up, she has an inkling. Not always. I know that's not always the case. But often. And so part of what we're being told here is that at home, with his wife, she needs to say, I believe he is a blameless man of God. I don't have an accusation to bring against him. I think the same thing carries over with the children, which is the other half of blameless at home. We read in verse 6, the second half, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. It's a difficult sentence. Some of your translations put believer. If you have ESV, New American Standard, it says children who are believers. And I think that's a mistake. It is a it is an okay translation of the word, but I, I think it is not the accurate translation of what Paul is saying. He is saying not necessarily that they are believers, but that they have a character trait of faithfulness. And that's not always the same thing. Um, he, he's... He's saying that these are children who, by example, show that they believe their father is above reproach because they show him reverence and respect. And sometimes that happens in a household, even when one of the children is not a believer. They can still show reverence for the parent. Let me read a block quote. I don't like reading whole block quotes, but... I think Brian Chapel gets at this really well. And I'm going to have Karen put it in the prayer thing, uh, the prayer email as well this week, so you can read it again. But he says this of this difficult sentence. First, the term for children, techna in Greek, is generally relating to children in the home, under parental authority. We should not hold leaders as accountable for the actions of independent adult children as we do for children under the care and supervision of the home. In other words, this is talking about you still have your children in your house. In your house, how do they treat you? Second, chapel goes on. The word for children is plural. We're not necessarily looking at the beliefs or actions of just one child, but of the basic character of the family as a whole. And finally, we are to evaluate whether the children are, quote, believing. Now, this term translated believe is derived from pistos in the uh, Greek and is better translated faithful. This rendering better communicates the intended meaning that our assessment is to be based on observations of the children's conduct and convictions over time, not on isolated statements or actions. Paul's terminology is not so much requiring us to examine a child's uh, professed testimony as to evaluate whether the child, in a manner appropriate to their age, 
is exhibiting evidence of consistent biblical discipline and spiritual nurture. There's a lot in there. I know. You'll get the quote. But you see the big point there once again is witnesses towards the man's blamelessness. What do the children think? How do they view him in the home? Remember that God has previously, through Paul in the New Testament, warned parents. In Ephesians 6, 4, he says, Fathers, especially fathers, because I think this is a sin we're more prone to than our wives maybe. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. One who has children in dissipation, in subordination, who run around, who disgrace the gospel, is he provoking them to act out like that? Is he training them in the nurture of the Lord? It's hard to say, isn't it? Because we know there are godly people who do a really great job parenting and they have really horrible children. Just horrible. And we know that there are really horrible parents who have really great children. But Paul is saying, to the best of our ability, how do we gauge? Well, look at how the children respond to the leadership of their own father. Because 1 Timothy 3, 5, the parallel text to ours today... If a man cannot govern his own house well, how can he keep the household of faith? And so we need to look at how the wife views her husband. Does she trust him? Is he a eyes only for me type of guy? We need to look at how the children respect and view their father. And by the way, you can't respect and view the father well and honor him without showing his wife the mother also honor right so the way that the household looks overall blameless at home with both wife and children viewing you as this type of guy and then i want more briefly to look at the the blamelessness in character verses seven through eight And I'm going to pair a bunch of these things together because a lot of them are things we know what this is. We see it in others and it's horrible. We don't tend to see them always in ourselves. But we're going to to look at these things paired. The you should not be this and you must be that. Paul tells us that the elder must not be self-willed in character. That is not an arrogant personality. Self-willed or arrogant and that's, that's as opposed to what he says a few seconds later. He is to be holy, a lover of what is good. Or as 1 Timothy 3 puts it, he's to be gentle, kind, and gracious. So this is to be a, a devout and pious man who expresses the gospel well. That's the simple way to put that, isn't it? And if someone's arrogant and self-willed, the gospel will take a a second place to my agenda, my will. 
So the elder needs to be one whose character in the community at large, in life, at work, is one that is not self-willed or arrogant, but wholly a lover of good. Not quick-tempered, he goes on to say. Not quick-tempered, but self-controlled. He needs to be one who's disciplined, in other words. Not quick-tempered, 1 Timothy 3, 3, but peaceable. Not always flying into a rage, not always taking stuff out on people. Why would that matter? Well, both in parenting and in every relationship, probably, and definitely in the church, the people we interact with sometimes frustrate us. How do we respond? Do we fly into a rage, quick-tempered, no, or self-controlled? We are all commanded to be disciplined or self-controlled. 1 Corinthians 9.25, Paul says of the, the Christian life, those who would compete in a race must be disciplined. You can't just wake up one morning and say, I guess I'm going to be a marathon runner today because the Boston, I guess, is having one of those. I'll go run. You can't do that. And a man can't wake up one morning and say, guess I'm going to be an elder today. I haven't been trying. I've been lashing out at everyone, but uh, I think I'll do it. No, one must be quick, uh, not quick-tempered, but self-controlled. And then not given to wine. Or as some translations have it, not given to much wine, in contrast with being sober-minded. And while wine is clearly part of what he's talking about here, it's the main focus, we, we can extract from that other things as well. Anything that controls your mind, your actions... If you are too dependent on it, right? That would be why wine is there. How can you be sober-minded? If you've, if you've drunk a whole bottle of wine with dinner and you get that phone call that someone's marriage is in trouble and you need to go do some counseling, what kind of counseling are you going to give? You've, you've given yourself over to being controlled by another substance. We could do that with any number of things. And it doesn't even have to be uh, in that same category. Many of you know how much I drink coffee. Actually, I have coffee with me this morning. Right here. But you could get to the point with coffee where you wake up in the morning and say, I can't meet with these people today unless I have my coffee. Well, that's a shame. Because, because then you can't sing what we're going to sing in a few minutes. Faithfully, truly, honestly. You are my strength when I am weak. What are you singing that to? My coffee cup. You are the treasure that I seek. This nice beer. You are my all in all. That comfort food chocolate. That Big Mac. Whatever the thing is that you need. I need. I had a man once tell me, you know, Nathan, I'm not going to take a nomination this year. I think there's been too many nights when I've thought, I need that beer. I didn't try to talk him out of it. He was applying the text. 
The elder ought to be one, both in terms of self-control, not being quick-tempered, sober-minded, being prudent, able to control his thoughts and his actions, not controlled by other substances, so that he can say to Jesus, You are my strength when I am weak. 3 a.m. and someone calls and they need desperate counseling because horrible things are happening. And I have a sober mind because I wasn't drunk last night. And I don't have to stop for coffee on my way. They need me there now. You are my strength when I am weak. You are my all in all. Or he won't be able to communicate that to others. Not violent. Not violent. It can be translated combative. New American Standard has as a bully. In contrast to violence, combative, bully, we have one who is just. Just. He hears you out. Hears you out. Wants to hear what you're thinking. Even if he has to correct. And I think added to that is able to teach. When we're combative or bullying people, we're not taking the time to instruct them. That's a hard one as elders. I've had to apologize for it a couple of times here where some change has been made. We didn't bother teaching on it. We, We studied it as elders. We did all the work. Able to teach, we're going to come back to next week. But able to teach and just are contrasted with being a bully or violent. And then not greedy for money, but hospitable. What, what a beautiful contrast, isn't it? Christ says you can't serve me and money. You'll serve one or the other. If a man already is greedy for money and we appoint him as an elder or a deacon, shame on us if we're surprised then when there's money missing. What a thought. Or when there are people in need who aren't being helped because we need that money in the bank account. Why? We might need it later. That's what someone who's greedy might say. But one, in contrast, who's hospitable, who holds their fist loosely. Maybe not open, they still have to provide for their own household. But loosely, ready to give and care and help those in need. And remember that hospitality is not just having your friends over for dinner, that's called fun. That's a good evening. It's a great thing. More biblically, it could be called fellowship. But hospitality is when you are opening your hand and giving of yourself what the other party needs and doing it in a way that is comfortable for them. I once had someone over our house for a meal. We ate, had some conversation. I don't remember if we had dessert or not. Holly was clearing the table and the person said to me, can I go home now? I had no idea the person was so uncomfortable. If I had said, no, we we have a great dessert lined up for you. 
Um, Well, we were thinking we would play this game this evening. (laughs) That's not hospitality. Hospitality is saying you you clearly need to go home. You're anxious. Go home. (laughs) And God bless you, right? Hospitality is giving of yourself what others need. Well, we're going to stop there with those qualifications, but you see what all of these qualifications point to. They point to one who was rich, and for our sakes he became poor. Who is the creator, God, sovereign, ruler, against whom we have often, often rebelled. And he did not lash out in violence. But he is, he is great in mercy, tender in his compassions. His faithfulness is daily refreshed. And he cares for his sheep. Why does it matter if we have these lists? It's Christ declared in us. Or it's the gospel disgraced. May God give us grace to be these people that are described here, all of us, in the realm God has called us to be. And may God give us, as he has over the years, leaders who can show us what these things are.